I was having uh, dinner with my friends who were teaching this retreat up the hill. And they were asking me what I was going to talk about. And I said, well, I've got this talk prepared, but I don't think I'm going to give it. I think I really just would rather talk, you know, speak to what's here in the room and speak to what wants to unfold, which is far more interesting <laughs> than any prepared talk. Well, maybe, I don't know, who knows? <laughs> we'll find out. <laughs> maybe I'll think that prepared talk was a good idea after all. <laughs> So as I was sitting, I was reflecting on the word tenderness. So I've been speaking, and I do speak a lot about compassion as one of the essential, beautiful human qualities and one of the, the, the essential qualities in life on the spiritual path and as a beautiful flowering and expression of practice, of awareness, of awakening. And that path, that journey of cultivation, cultivating of compassion is never an easy journey. We don't just pop out and suddenly we're very compassionate. (laughs) It's usually very hard won through confronting pain through confronting our own struggles, our own challenges, our own burdens, of which we have many. And when I think about this practice, which is grounded in mindfulness practice, awareness practice, one way of looking at it is it's a practice of bearing witness. It's a practice of bearing witness to ourselves, to life, to each other, to the world, to the beauty and the tragedy of life. And if we do that fully, wholeheartedly, in every corner of our lives, one of the things that arises is we come to be intimate with our own humanity and our own vulnerability. You could say one of the nature, one of the the fundamental aspects of being human, of being in a body, is to be vulnerable. We are vulnerable, period. And sometimes that's looked upon as a weakness or something to be overcome, to be strong, and to be all those things. But the truth is, It's vulnerable to be human, to be in the body and the heart, to be susceptible to sickness, to death, to loss, to hardships, uncertainty. And so that vulnerability, if it's to be met, is is to be met fully requires a tenderness a tenderness to meet our humanness. And so I was reflecting on tenderness as I was sitting, I was feeling a lot of tenderness, both in my experience and reflecting on tenderness in my life 
and in t- my day actually, and, and thinking all the different ways that tenderness informed and came out of the different things I did today. And I was reminded of uh, when I was, uh, I was, I started my Buddhist training with an organization in England, and I was in, in this ordination process. And one of the things that, uh, as part of the training, was we were asked to give spontaneous talks, and someone in the audience would just give you a theme, and you had to give a talk about it, which was, I was 22 and petrified. <laughs> and someone, and, and people just shouted out randomly, somewhat intuitively, but randomly. And someone said, give a talk about tenderness. And I was clueless. I don't know what to say about tenderness. I was 22, for God's sake. <laughs> and, but I, you know, I had enough wherewithal in that moment to sort of drop into my experience and, and, and to reflect that actually that quality does permeate our experience in different ways, in different ways we relate to us, each other, to nature, to loved ones, to animals, to different things. And so um, it probably planted a seed of, uh, of reflection, conscious and unconscious, about well, what does it mean to live with tenderness? Sometimes it's usually a quality we reserve or think is reserved for our loved one, or our children, animals perhaps. But as I th- thought about the various, just various ordinary, simple interactions that I've had today in the last few days, and I'm just struck by the tenderness, uh, or the, the the tenderness of being human. So I was on the phone with a student psychiatrist wonderful, amazing uh, practitioner and works with cancer patients, uh, has done for 30 years. And she's telling me about this patient she's working with who um, is uh, bone cancer, I believe. I forget all the details. She's going for a bone marrow uh, transfusion. She has a 1% chance of surviving pretty much the whole st- entire staff have given up on her. She's there to so be the psychological, emotional support. And um, was reporting of how she's feeling the very fear and heartache and physiology that the, pers- the patient's uh, experiencing and um, coming out of the tenderness in which she's holding and not running from this person's immense pain and terror of facing, you know, certain death, almost. And I was talking to a student today and a friend who is experiencing uh, the pain of early childhood, of loss, of profound loss of a parent. And as happens in this mystery we call life, that At times, usually when we have the capacity and strength to re-experience and reintegrate those very traumatic experiences when we were young, he's working through that experience. 
meeting it with a very beautiful tenderness. And, and again, I'm just touched by how tender life is, you know, that we carry within us these wounds, I don't like that wound, it's a bit a little too pathologizing, but these tender places that guide and inform our life and our decisions consciously and unconsciously. And are asking for healing and to be met with a tender awareness, tender heart. We can't meet those with hostility or rejection and heal. Usually, the 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 very react you know our, our often initial reaction is the very thing that we received in the first place and becomes re-traumatizing. So you can maybe think for yourself the different ways that you may be invited to feel your own tenderness. Maybe it's the frailty of your body. A dear friend of mine who's doing a lot of work with an, a near-death experience and feeling her essential existential aloneness. You know, feeling very connected with community and friends and loved ones and also feeling that, that innate loneness that we carry within us. We're born alone and we die alone. So I'm going to share a little of this story um, that I uh, was touched by. I I had no idea where it came from. And it's a story of uh, a woman who visits the laundrette to do a laundry. (coughs) I can't think why else you go to the laundrette. Anyhow. um, And um, so she's doing a laundry. And she notices there's an old woman sitting by herself in the corner, looking and facing a washing machine, and uh, mumbling to herself. And everybody around her sort of a little, feeling a little, you know, dubious about this character who's mumbling and seems to hang out in the laundrette for a long time and um, is a regular. And um, uh, this person, when she puts a clothes in the dryer, sits next to this old lady who's mumbling. And she realizes she's not mumbling, she's actually doing some kind of prayer, some kind of offering, prayer, mantra. And so she sits with her for a while. And, uh, and then the, this lady uh, uh, gives her a card. And um, it says on the card, uh, you might be wondering why, you know, what I'm doing. Um, I come here because this is where my, uh, I, I lost my son in the Vietnam War and this is where he used to do his laundry. And so I come here to pray for him. I come here to remember him and I do my laundry and I offer prayers. So uh, this woman who um, was just you know, happily doing a laundry she, uh, you know, would, would go back every week and see this uh, old lady doing the same practice of praying and sitting quietly. And so she would sit with her 
often way past the time of the cycle, the spin cycles, and you know, finish spinning. And they just sit quietly together while this lady prayed. And then one day, um, the woman who was doing this sort of witnessing work, she, she um, was in the laundrette and the, and the old lady wasn't there. And she realized, and then over a period of weeks, she realized she was no longer coming back. And, <clears throat> and then one day, um, uh, another woman showed up, much younger, very well dressed, and um, was looking around for somebody. And somehow they got into conversation. <coughs> And it turns out this was the daughter of the old lady who had been praying for her son. And she, the old lady had asked uh, her daughter to give uh, a note to the woman who had been sitting with her for a while. And so the note goes like this. My dear companion and friend, in the beginning when I came to this place, I came in sorrow. I sat and remembered my boy and prayed, People cast glances my way and acted as, as if I was somehow a bit crazy. I sat in the same place and talked with my son and prayed that he would know I loved him still and was so proud to be his mother. Then one day you walked in and sat beside me. As time went by, you continued to come and my prayers became your prayers. I wondered how you could understa- understand an old fool like me, let alone decipher what I was saying. Somehow y- you understood. In this life, I try to be good to be someone who others could look up to and feel that my intentions were always to assist, never to harm. At one point, I also believed... Ignore that sentence. You asked me for nothing, and you gave me something that I will carry until, with me until I leave this earth. You gave me acceptance, respect, and treated me with a gentle regard for the person I was. What you may not have realized was that coming here became a time I truly look forward to. I look forward to meeting you, dear friend, and never even knew your name. I'm now going to meet my son very soon, and I wanted to write this while my mind was clear and made sure that Alice, my daughter, would carry out my wishes. Your presence and acceptance of what seemed like oddities meant so much to me. No one has ever been so kind without expecting something in return. I was always happy to give, but you gave me a gift that is priceless the gift of acceptance and time spent with an old lady that everyone decided was sick. I will forever be in your debt and you'll forever be in my heart. So what I cherish about these, this story and these kind of stories is the simpleness, the ordinariness. Right? It wasn't, doing, wasn't any grand action or gesture. It was a very simple, ordinary human witnessing, bearing witness, being with, with a kind, patient, open heart, and, and very profound in that simplicity, very beautiful in that willingness to hang out with somebody in their, in their tenderness. So as you know, I'm a bit of a nature lover, as I'm sure many of you are, if not most of you. It's probably why you live in these parts. And that also is a beautiful place that evokes tenderness. You know, we see the non-human world in its 
fragility, you know, whether it's the new, the born deer, the fawns that will be soon uh, jumping around the grassy hills if, if they haven't already. Has anybody seen young fawns yet this season? No, it's a little early, but they're coming soon to a meadow near you. And, um, you know, the little baby turkeys that, that run around here and are incredibly vulnerable, you know, with all the coyotes and foxes and mountain lion that we have here. I remember, it's one of my favorite memories of being at Spirit Rock. Um, so those of you who know the retreat center, there's every year the, the swallows come and nest uh, in above, the, above a busy doorway by the toilets up, up, up in the retreat center. And they make these incredible spit nests, and um, and then you know over time their young grow and hatch, and you see these little frail, vulnerable, shaking little heads, and you know like mama, you mama, no, you're not mama, mama. And you know it's beautiful to feel that tenderness of life emerging, bursting forth. And I remember one night I was walking out around late, as I do sometimes. Uh, it was a moon, moonlit night, and there was an there was an owl. We have great horned owl here, great horned owls here sometimes, and um, they like young birds, you know. It's like you know, it's like I don't know, schmores. I don't know what they are to them, but tasty. And um, so the great horned owl sitting on top of the dharma hall up there, meditation hall, and the and the parent swallows a doing this very wild, chaotic dance, freaking out because you know, they're, they're at risk of losing their, their young. And, um, you know, that's life, you know. Tender, wild, brutal, and how do we meet that? How do we meet the beauty and the horror you know, the tenderness of the young swallows and also the tenderness for the great hornell who has to eat. You know? The beautiful thing about the, the capacity of the heart, it, it, it has more capacity to hold duality more than the mind does. The mind so easily gets carved up into right, wrong, good, bad, etc. And the heart can, can hold um, that paradox. You know, I was teaching a loving-kindness retreat one year, and um, this woman was struggling with the the paradox of how can you wish everybody well and happy when you know people are going to hurt each other and kill each other and animals have to eat other animals to survive and fish have to eat other fish to survive. And it doesn't make sense to wish everyone well because, you know, one half has to eat the other half. I said, well, that might be true, and it is true, and, but don't you still wish life to be happy? Don't you wish both predator and prey to be happy? Maybe, I don't know. So she's out on this walk. It's in, the, it's, uh, in winter in New England. She's walking down this country lane, and she looks up, and she sees this shower of bird feathers falling from a tree, and there's a hawk who has a chickadee and is eating the chickadee. Right? And she had that insight of wanting both hawk and chickadee to be well. Right? Even though one is eating the other to survive. Mm-hmm. 
So when we think about climate change and then loss of species and habitat and all of the other tragic things that are happening with climate change, again, it's a, this is a tenderness on a, on a grand scale. You know, how do you respond to that immensity of loss? How do we keep our heart open without it going numb, which is easy to do? So this is a poem from Mary Oliver. I don't know what it's called, but it's a lovely poem. She says, Here is a story to break your heart. Are you willing? This winter the loons came to our harbor and died one by one of nothing we could see. A friend told me of one on the shore that lifted its head and opened the elegant beak and cried out in the long, sweet savoring of its life which if you've heard it, you know is a sacred thing. And for which if you've not heard it, you had better hurry to where they still sing and believe me, tell no one just where it is. The next morning, this loon speckled and iridescent with a plan to fly home to some hidden lake was dead on the shore. I tell you this to break your heart, by which I mean only that it break open and never close again to the rest of the world. So not easy for the heart to break open and stay open. Because what, when the heart is open, what happens? We feel a lot of pain. We feel the tenderness and we feel the vulnerability and we feel the losses and the sadness and the, you know, just the inevitable fact of life. But it also means we feel the beauty and the rapture and the joy and the ecstasy and the love and the passion and the freedom and the vividness. We close the heart down to suffering. We close the heart down for joy, for wonder, for awe. So in my work with people, so I do a lot of one-on-one work with people in my as a work as a teacher and as a coach and all the different ways I work with people. And I think one of my one of the things that's asked most is to bear witness to other people's stories of of challenge, of difficulty, of stress, of loss. And to do so in a way that's tender, to do so in a way that's caring. Not to fix, not to get rid of the problem, not to problem solve unless they want that, but just to really bear witness, which is this amazing capacity we have as human beings to give to each other when we give the gift of our presence, which is such a rare quality in this life. I teach a lot of mindfulness stuff in, 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 in companies and healthcare and corporations and, and I say, so how many people, how many people go to meetings where people actually listen to each other? <laughs> how many of you have supervisors where they actually listen to you rather than problem solve and fix you? And it's pretty rare.
And it's amazing how much healing can come in the simply being witnessed. We often think we need to be doing more, helping more, fixing. But mostly that's not what people want. Sometimes it is. But mostly we want to be held in our distress. Because hard, you know, the nature of dukkha, the translation for dukkha, which is the Buddha's word for suffering, means difficult to bear, difficult to hold. And when we bring that loving presence to someone else, we provide that greater capacity so they can hold, they can bear it. Just as we do when we comfort a child, right? We hold them, we, we rock them, right? As a way of giving them some greater capacity. In the same way we go to our therapist, we lean on the therapist's presence so we can deal more easily with our own pain without our critic or whatever else our mind is, is haranguing us for. You know, and some of us are born with a more natural access to care and tenderness and compassion, and some of us have to do a lot more work on it. (laughs) And those of us who have to do work, it takes work. And the work, in my experience, is learning how to meet our own challenges and struggles with that quality of tenderness. This is the laboratory. We sit in meditation and we welcome the fires and the heat and the stillness and the rage and the fear and the loss and the challenge and the boredom. We meet that as much as we can with awareness, with curiosity, and hopefully with some tenderness. Because if we don't, then we feel abandoned by ourselves, we feel rejected, we feel split, we feel cut off, we feel alienated, we feel unintegrated. We wonder why things follow us around, why they don't resolve, because we can't actually face them, so they kind of just keep hanging around in us, you know, just in the edge of awareness. When I first started practicing meditation, I had a lot of sadness, and I used to wonder why I was so sad, and and I'd meditate, and if I just got beneath the surface, there was sadness. And I'd go and retreat, got beneath the surface, there was sadness. And I'd go to Hawaii, got beneath the surface, there was sadness. Like, where, where, why do you keep following me around, sadness? Because I didn't want to feel it. I didn't want to open to it. I didn't want to acknowledge it. I didn't want to even, I didn't want to look that way, never mind feel or, or let alone understand what the root of the sadness was. Until I started doing longer retreats where there was no escape. It was just like me and the shampoo bottle that I'd read 50 times and the sadness. I was like, how many times can you read the shampoo bottle? Okay, sadness. All right, a few minutes. Let's just feel it. Tears, loss, whatever, grief. And um, little by little, there was less fear, there was more openness, there was more welcoming, there was more integration. And at some point, I notice, oh, I don't feel sad anymore. I don't feel like this, this substrata of sadness doesn't feel like my true nature. I felt like it was my true nature because that was always what I would drop into. And after, when that sort of had moved through, it's like, oh, there's much deeper layers to my being than sadness, like peace, like spaciousness, like kindness, like presence. 
So I'd like to share this piece from a Zen teacher, um, Darlene Cohen, who had a slow, debilitating illness. And what I love about it is how she meets it. She meets it with tenderness, I would say. People sometimes ask me where my own healing energy comes from. How in the middle of this pain and this implacable, slow crippling can I encourage myself and other people? My answer is that my healing comes from my own struggle with despair, with terror, shadow. I dip down into it again and again, and I'm flooded with its healing energy. Despite the renewal and vitality it gives me, To face my deepest fears, I don't go willingly when they call. I've been around this wheel a million times. First I feel the despair. I deny it for a few days. Its tugs become more insistent in proportion to my resistance. Finally overwhelms me and pulls me down, kicking and screaming all the way. It's clear I'm caught. So at last I give up to the reunion with this darker aspect of my adjustment to pain and loss, and immediately the release begins. First peace, and then floods of vitality and healing energy. However, I can never just give up to it when I first feel it stir. You'd think after a million times with a happy ending, I would just give up right away and say, take me, I'm yours. But I never can, I always resist. I guess that's why it's called despair or suffering or something. If you went willingly, it would be called something like purification or renewal or something hopeful. It's staring this pain and annihilation in the face that's so terrifying. And I resist until it overwhelms me, but I've come to trust it deeply. It's enriched my life, informed my work, and taught me not to fear the dark. So this path of tenderness, you know, which you could call a path of compassion, is courageous. It takes courage to have an open, tender heart. Easier to be numb, easier to be shut down in a certain way because of the immense amount of challenge there is in the world, stress, pain, loss, personal, global, societal, etc. Harder to stay, to keep, to uh, allow the heart to be open, to feel both the beauty, the rapture, and the tremendous loss and sadness that's part of being here. But it's interesting, I think, when I think about this quality and this orientation to life and to experience, When I'm in that domain, when I'm in that territory, it's often the time I feel the most alive, the most poignant, the most connected to life. So it's beautiful in its sensitivity. Am I making sense? Are you tracking what I'm thinking? This, okay, I'm just making sure. I'm like, what the hell's he on about? Is he going to stop you? <laughs> <laughs> Because this is, you know, it's sort of subtle, you know, it's, it's, I'm, I'm trying to speak to a, a, a subtle nuance, right? We talk a lot about compassion and love and metta and those are beautiful qualities, but this is a, it's almost like a quality underneath 
that those ride on. It's a support for those qualities, or it's a facet of those qualities. And I think life is, is asking is, is asking for us to bring forth that at times. You know, not when you're watching the you know, the, the playoffs, you know, and the Super Bowl or whatever, but you know, many, many times we're we're invited inwardly with ourselves, outwardly, with our loved ones, friends, strangers sometimes. Or with nature. And I was driving along, I should share this since it's interesting story that made it to the Pacific Sun. Um, so I'm driving back from this ritual and, and I was at Stinson Beach with a shaman. And I'm driving along and it's this howl, it was sun last Saturday, it's howling, rainy, misty night, barely see anything. Driving along higher one just out of Stinson, so it's kind of a hairy road at night. And this coyote comes out, runs out, and attacks the car. <laughs> and it's like running after me, chewing on the tire. And I'm like freaked out. <laughs> and I'm thinking, ah, oh, I've just come out of this shamanic, you know, thing. And here's, you know, medicine coming out of the forest. And, um, or it's a coyote attacking my car. I don't know. Or it's both. <laughs> And, and so I stopped, and I was worried about it. I thought he ran it over. I had this crunch. I was like, oh, no. I just, it wasn't the coyote. And I reversed, and it's standing by the side of the road, and it's just staring at me. And, and the ways that coyotes, and only the ways coyotes can do, they just stare at you. They just kind of, you know, stare you down. <laughs> it's a blinking contest. In the wily ways. And it's raining and misty, and it's very... Wild and and I mean, my heart's racing because I thought I killed this beautiful being, and then and I hadn't. So I'm relieved, and I'm you know in this in this incredible you know those sort of moments where time drops away and you're just locked in with a, a wild animal. And it's beautiful and mystical and and tender in 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 that in that poignancy. You know? Turns out I'm not the only car to be attacked. <laughs> <laughs> and the reason it made it to the Pacific Sun is because me- several car drivers who make that run at night have been noticing that there's a one, if not two, rather um, interesting coyotes <laughs> who seem to like to make sport out of chasing cars. I don't know. <laughs> so those of you who go to Stinson at night, be watch out. You know, I'm thinking about the times that I've watched His Holiness the Dalai Lama. I haven't seen this live, I don't think, but I've seen it many times uh, in film when he's, uh, particularly when he's in Dharamsala and he's greeting the exile, the people who've escaped out of Tibet, you know, from often incredible 
conditions of uh, repression and depravity and hunger and torture and all, all the horrible things that humans do to each other. And um, and he holds, you know, he listens to each person. Done this for must be sixty years now. Listens to each person's story, and he weeps, and he weeps, and he weeps at the uh, suffering. You know. And I look to someone like the Dalai Lama as a beautiful embodiment of someone who has tremendous fire, and power, and courage. And he is incredibly vulnerable and tender and, and weeps at the drop of a hat when he's faced with human struggle. It's beautiful, that, that balance of qualities. So maybe you know people in your life who, who embody this quality of tenderness. What I'm calling tenderness, you might have your own word for it. So this is a poem I wrote some years ago um, that speaks to, again, I feel like often, you know, sometimes all roads lead to Rome. Many of uh, the uh, qualities in this journey have a similar kind of trajectory or or onward leading path going to a similar place. And so this is a poem uh, about turning and I think it's one of the most important things that happens on the path. I spoke to it a little earlier with the sadness when we, instead of turning away, we turn towards, we lean in. But we lean in not with fixing, not with trying to endure and get beyond, but to lean in to get intimate with what's here. Your only duty is to not run from here, from this Even if the hole of loss burns deep in your belly and on waking you feel the dread of walking into the day stripped bare. You can always pretend, try putting on a face other than your own, but that's a game that's never worked and only burns a deeper hole inside the pocket of longing, making the shell you've chosen to live in even more empty. But there are times when there's no choice but to turn towards those empty places that lie within that you've spent a lifetime running from. And you embrace them with delicate hands of love, the way the evening fog envelops the solitary tree without flinching, pressing into and loving every gnarled crevice, every twisted branch, even the forgotten needles fall into the ground. This is the first step that begins the slow journey of completeness keeps inviting you deeper into the roots of yourself, claiming your place that has been waiting, that is always right here. So, I guess my invitation to you, or my, my, my wish for you, is that you see uh, each moment as an invitation to turn towards, to open to, to lean into, to embrace, to meet with curiosity, with tenderness, with love, or as much as we can muster. And then we forget, and then we begin again. 
<laughs> and then we space out and we begin again. And we get pissed off, grumpy and reactive and we begin again. And we meet that with tenderness or love or forgiveness. So I think that's all I wanted to say. So let's just sit quietly for a moment. Inviting this quality of tender awareness with whatever's here in your heart, body, mind. And may we carry this quality, this gift of our presence to the world. Okay, thank you everybody for your kind attention. So I will see you here in a few weeks. Thanks. Have a good night. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.